0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Ezra chapter 10, beginning in verse 18, says this. Now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. Masia, Eliezer, Jerib and Gedaliah, some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josadak and his brothers. They pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. Of the sons of Imer, Hanani, and Zebediah, of the sons of Harim, Messiah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehil and Uzziah. Of the sons of Pasher, Elionai. Messiah, Ishmael, Nathanael, Jehozabad, and Elassa, Of the Levites, Jehozabad, Shimi, Keliah, <coughs> that is, Kalita, Pethahiah, Judah, and Eliezer. Of the Seners, Eliashib. Of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telem, and Uri. And of Israel, the sons of Perush, Ramiah, Isaiah, Malkijah, Mijamin, Eliezer, Hashabiah, and Benaiah. Gosh, I feel like I'm doing really well right now. <laughs> Pride comes before the fall, right? <laughs> Verse 26. Of the sons of Elam, Mataniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah. Of the sons of Zatu, Elioni, Elieashib, Mataniah, Jeremoth, Zabad, and Azizah. Of the sons of Bibai were Jehuhanan, Hananiah, Zabai, and Athli. Of the sons of Bani, Meshulam, Maluk, Adiah, Jeshub, Sheel, and Jeremoth. Of the sons of Pehath-Moab, Adna, Chalal, Benaiah, Messiah, Matani, Oh, it's Mataniah. Bezalel, there we go, Bezalel. Hmm. Binui and Manasseh, of the sons of Harim, Eliezer, Ishijah, Malkijah, Shemaiah, Shimeon, Benjamin, Maluk, and Shemariah. Of the sons of Hashim, Mataniah, Matata, Zabad, Eliphelet, Jeremiah, Manasseh. Shimmi, of the sons of Bani, Madi, Amram, Uil, uh, Benaiah, Bediah, Cheluhi, Vaniah, uh, Merimuth, Eliashib, Mataniah, Mataniah. There's two of them. No, there's Mataniah and Mataniah. That's the difference. Uh, Jesu of the sons of Binui, got Shimi, Shelemiah, Nathan. Adiah you got Magnadebi <laughs> What the heck? Magna-debi. Shishai or Sheshi, uh, Shirai, uh, Azrael, Shelemiah, Shemariah, Shulam, Amariah, and Joseph, of the sons of Nebo, Jiel and Matimatithia, Zabad, Zabina, Jadi, Joel, and Beniah. All these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Um, thank you for the little small moments of laughter, even and trying to pronounce these names. Um, I, know I was reminded, even as I was spelling some of these names out, that uh, you know every, um, every hair on our head. And uh, you have no problems pronouncing any names. Um, and uh, you know us intimately. We read these names and uh, feel pretty far removed. Um, and yet, Lord, I, you, you uh, in your sovereignty, chose to put these names in your word so that we might be benefited by it. And uh, I would admit, I don't think most of us in the room would read past this list and move right into Nehemiah next because the first chapter of Nehemiah seems much more fun than li- this list. And yet, Lord, I know that as I have studied it uh, this week and thought through it, you've blessed me. I pray that you'd do the same here for your people. Uh, I trust you to do that. I pray that you'd reveal the work of your son, Jesus, the cross and the empty tomb. Give us again the assurance and the promise in the gospel that we might be called sons and daughters of God. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What a riot of a way to end a uh, study in a book in the Bible, right? Um, These uh, final verses here that we just read through, um, really all they are uh, is just simply a list of names, right? Duh, they're just a list of names. But they're a list of names of the men who had pledged themselves publicly to repent of their sin. Uh, We've been looking at this the last couple of weeks. The sin that they were guilty of is taking foreign women into their homes and either A, marrying them or B, living with them as though they were married, okay? Um, That is the debate among scholars uh, that goes way back. And depending upon which stance you kind of take, whether they married these foreign women or were living with them as though they were married, will then kind of dictate how you might preach or think through or study This text. And so it is wholly appropriate to take either one of those stances. I think you'll be able to tell kind of where I land and the way that I'm seeing it and some of the reasons why as we move through it. But that debate is there. um, And it's there because of the language. The original Hebrew language that is used here to describe marriage or wives is not used hardly anywhere else in the rest of the Old Testament. When talking about marriage and wives in other places in the Old Testament, other words are used commonly. These are uncommon words, and they carry this other meaning, which is why some believe that it was less of a formal marriage situation and more of a living together as though they were married. Either way, though, wherever you land, the big topic and the big issue here is that these men were guilty of a sin. And the sin that they were guilty of is simply intermarrying. Uh, The issue is not race or ethnicity. The issue is intermarrying and living in these marriage-like situations with women who were not followers of God. And this was a very clear violation of God's previous commands in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and in Exodus chapter 34. You can find those commands and those instructions there. And these men were living in direct violation of that. Now, God's instructions regarding marriage and family have been very clear from the beginning all throughout the Bible, okay? The family is designed to be a small community, a small community where God's name is glorified and lifted high. Um, The family is is meant to be a community where parents uh, uh, teach and train their children in the ways of the Lord, according to Deuteronomy 6, Proverbs 22, Ephesians 6. And so because of this kind of responsibility that the Bible lays out for us, husbands and wives are not to be unequally yoked, right? Meaning that believers are not to marry unbelievers. Um, Believers are not to engage in that kind of a marriage or that kind of a marriage-like relationship. And you can find that in 2 Corinthians 6. It's spelled out really clearly. God does allow, though, in that context, in 1 Corinthians 7, he does allow for a marriage to continue when one of, uh, of, of, the, of the married couple, if a spouse becomes a believer after they get married, and if the other spouse does not, and is now an unbelieving spouse, but they're willing to live together in peace with each other, um, then God allows for that, um, as long as it's peaceful healthy. It shouldn't be a stretch of the imagination um, to think about how hard that kind of a situation would be, right? You think, think about how hard that would be to live in a home that is divided over something as crucial as living for God. And 1 Corinthians 7, again, spells some of that out. Now, King Solomon, if you were to look at King Solomon's scripture, and you've heard me use him as an illustration the last couple of weeks, I want to use him again. King Solomon was known to be the wisest man who ever lived, except for when it came to the topic of marriage. Apparently, he's really wise in all sorts of other things. When it came to marriage, when it came to women, dude wasn't very wise at all. Dude was probably what Proverbs would call a fool when it came to this topic. Okay, dude tried to uh, marry, um, or, or yeah, i tried to marry, or did marry roughly a thousand different women. Some of them he married and some of them he just lived in marriage-like relationships with. He had wives and he had concubines. I don't know why. I don't know what drove him there. Um, but I think that trying to manage a thousand relationships with a thousand women, I mean a thousand people, period, is hard. But that kind of intimate relationship? Whew. Foolish. On top of that, though, Solomon married or lived in these relationships with these thousand women and they did not worship God. And what he found over time is that he could not build enough shrines to their gods to keep them happy, not to mention the fact that since he's now living in that kind of sin, he's unable to please God because of that sin, right? So that's another example in Scripture where this has gone wrong, and you can see it in 1 Kings 11. Fascinating story to read. So suffice it to say, God's design for marriage and family has always been intended to bring honor and attention to his name alone, and the act of intentionally marrying or the act of intentionally living in a marriage-like relationship with an unbeliever, this is a massive threat to the purity and the purpose of God's design for marriage and family, right? That's the case of argument. That's no secret, uh, again. Just like we just looked at Solomon, no secret that God's paid people have failed in this area uh, seriously um, for eons, right? But going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, you see it too. There was a brokenness that happened there in the garden. And you have Adam, who's supposed to be the leader and the protector and the example and the model of a man um, in marriage. And he's standing passively by as Eve is being tempted by the serpent to sin and to go against God's instructions. And and then later on, Adam even joins Eve in that sinful behavior as they eat the fruit together. In those moments, you can see marriage and family was under attack from day one. Because the reality is, the serpent, Satan, our, our enemy, has been attacking God from day one. And... marriage and family is one of those places once again where God can like mirror himself to a watching world you find this story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 right and from that point forward from that broken family forward even think of the way that that sin affected their children Cain and Abel right Um, God comes to Cain I mean there's some kind of conflict between the two of them over worship and Cain's spinning out. God comes to Cain and says, Hey, sin's crouching around the corner getting ready to devour. You better fight back or it will kill you. What does Cain do? Hardens his heart against God, ignores him, kills his brother. From that point forward, here we are today, right? This is a picture. That's a picture of what happens when sin enters the world. And from that point forward with Adam and Eve and then their kids moving forward... Sin then entered into the bloodstream, right? Kind of entered into you and I's bloodstream, the, the the whole bloodstream of all of humanity, and it entered it just like a nasty little virus, and it, it spread like wildfire. Eating through the human heart. It's like a bad case of gangrene. According to Romans 5. Sin is infectious. It's infectious, and the human heart knows no bounds when it comes to sin. The human heart knows no bounds when it comes to justifying sin, ignoring sin, excusing sin, minimizing it, blame-shifting it, all while feasting on that poisonous fruit. That poisonous fruit, it looks so tasty, that, that fruit of rebellion. And somehow finding some kind of joy or happiness momentarily in consuming the vomit of ungodly pleasures, according to Proverbs 6, 2 Peter 2. As a dog returns to his vomit, it is gross. Like, why would you ever think that vomit is good? You ever seen a dog do that? I have. I have a couple of dogs, and they're stupid. It's like, you're stupid. Why would you do that? I'm like, oh, sin is like, I'm stupid. Why would I do that? because of that brokenness, it's because of that sin that has infected our bloodstream. It's there. It ain't going away completely until we walk into heaven. It's a serious thing. Like I said last week, it's a serious thing. We'll kill you if you don't get serious about killing it, according to Romans 8.13. It's why John Owen said, and I repeated him last week, best be killing sin or sin will be killing you. This is why Ezra, I believe, here took a very strong approach to dealing with Israel's sin in these final verses of our text. Let's remember what Ezra's mission was, his vision and mission, right? Beautify the temple, reform and restore a community that was governed by the authority of God's word, right? And so it's kind of beautiful because the last thing we see in the text after Ezra finally gets there, it's like the whole book is just leading up to this grand moment when Ezra finally gets boots on the ground gets the report of the spiritual condition of Israel, and the first thing he deals with is this. And he doesn't run, he doesn't bail, doesn't cower down, and he just slowly, methodologically, deals with it. Again, if you take the stance that these are actual marriages, it's pretty problematic, hard to explain. If you take the stance that uh, the language is saying that They're living together in marriage-like situations. This does away a lot of tension, because later in Nehemiah, Nehemiah does not ask those who have intermarried to get divorced. Why? Because I think they're actually married. I think in this situation, I think they're not. And to me, then, it it dispels all of the issues. And And it puts Ezra in this place of actually leading what he was called to lead, reform. Biblical reform in a community. And Ezra literally has pulled no punches in, over the last couple of weeks. Calling Israel to repent. Calling them to reform. Unsleep things under the rug, gets busy killing sin, right? Well, the first thing we notice in our text room today, first thing I noticed was the list of names, right? When we, we read this really hard list of names. This list of names is literally entered into the public record for everyone to see. Number one, this should be easy to see that we have the public record because it's right here in a public book, right? Public record. Not to mention the way that you might envision this taking place is somebody's name is being called out publicly in these communities. Um, So the way I'm seeing this is repentance here doesn't appear to be some kind of a private matter that is reserved uh, for the counseling office or the boardroom in the basement. I'm not saying that there's never a place for that. But in this case, in this kind of a case, it seems like it was meant to be very public. And maybe it's because the sin itself was very public. Maybe that's the way to say it. There was nothing private about this. Everybody knew, right? So all in all, you got roughly 111 cases. Uh, I think I made a comment a few weeks ago that it seemed like this had infected the entire nation. That was probably a little bit of an over-exaggeration, just so you know. Uh, I have a tendency to over-exaggerate things sometimes. Um, 111 cases out of the amount of people that were actually in Israel at the same time. This is a pretty small minor pocket, 1% maybe, I think, or something like that. And It wasn't as big as I would think it was, but still big enough and important enough because it started with the top leaders, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, and then average citizens. So I think it's not an over-exaggeration to say that it had deeply affected and infected Israel because it infected uh, different kinds of people from the top down, so to speak. Um, The numbers aren't very high. It's only 111 cases. Still, 111 cases is a lot if you think about having to listen to 111 cases, right? Trying to investigate that and deal with that. It's 111 families. Um, And they were evaluated publicly over a three-month period of time, and all of them found guilty. That was the finding. Guilty. Have you ever been to court for something uh, and heard that word, guilty? Or maybe in your case, you're like, no, "I am guilty, so I'm just going to admit it." Hey, judge, guilty. Can we just not waste any more time? Just give me the ticket and the fine. I'm get out of your hair, type thing. And the judge is like, "Yep, smash the gavel. Guilty. You out of here. Go do your penance, pay your fines, pay your fees." Guilty. Can you imagine that scrutiny, though, in this situation? That kind of scrutiny, okay? Having your name called out in public as one of the guilty parties involved. We live in kind of a voyeuristic culture and community. We love to pull up social media feeds or articles about what certain people have done or failed in, right? Politicians failing in certain areas and we read those stories and we want to know we read stories recently of different churches and church organizations failing epically and falling into sin having sin so deceptively entwined into the culture of those ministries (coughs) And we read those and i think some people read those and they're excited how that that organization fell others are heartbroken i can't believe this is where we're at and so on and so forth We live in a day and age where the public list of the guilty is readily accessible, right? I'm pretty sure you could probably pull up my record, probably type in Joe Marino, and publicly you could probably find some of my record in my background. I don't know if I should say criminal record. I don't know if that's quite right, but you can find my record, right? You can do these searches. do background searches on people without even having a social security number, and get some information, maybe not all. Can you imagine that though? Having your name on that public record called out as one of the guilty parties involved. I mean, just imagine, like feel kind of the guilt and the shame of that. I asked you last week to list in your mind, I think it was last week or the week before, to list in your mind the uh, maybe the top three sins or the top ten sins you struggled with this last week. And, uh, of course, I think I chided us a little bit. If I didn't, I'll chide us now. Like, if you didn't sin 10 times last week, I'm kind of wondering, like, how did? is your name Jesus? You know, <laughs> you know you make that list. And then I think I said something last week, and I've been using this one for years. And I, I use it on myself all the time. But, you know, the top one, or one to three, I want you to share those around your table here in a minute. And the horror that you feel in that moment, like, oh, I don't think so. I'm not telling that person that. And this is what's taking place. Right, the top sin that was taking place then is being listed publicly. A lot of guilt, a lot of shame. Second thing we see in the text is uh, the pledge and the offering in verse 19. Um, pledge and offering. Crazy thing about this story, as you're reading it, is that everyone in Israel had previously agreed to a very public ceremony of repentance. Right. They had agreed to that. They took an oath previously. They pledged to obediently repent in verses 5 and 12 of chapter 10. And so they're on the hook for this. They made that commitment. That's a a high commitment. And I think in a shiny moment of godly character, that's the way I see it. Israel and her leaders actually follow through on their oath. We see that in verse 19. They follow through on this oath. They had pledged themselves to put away their wives. Or the word that could be there instead of wives would be foreign women. Because that's the word that's been used quite a bit. They pledged themselves to put away their wives or their foreign women. And it says that they made the proper restitution, right? By giving a guilt offering. And the guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. I don't know, I didn't do the research on how much a ram of the flock was worth. I just have a sense that it was pretty costly. Um, So what does that tell you? What does that tell you? When you think about this is what Israel had to do in repentance for their sin, it tells you that sin is costly. Right? That's intrinsically true, isn't it? Sin will cost you. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Moves on further and says, but the gift of life. Um, There's a free gift of life in Jesus Christ. So when you place your faith in Christ, you get a gift, an eternal gift. But when you sin, you get a paycheck for it. And the paycheck you get in the dollar amount place, capital words, Death costly. The wages of sin is death. Sin will cost you. On the front edge of sin, or even in the midst of sin, let's just say you didn't really see that you were falling into sin, and it was a a mistake legitimately. You fell into this thing. There was no previous temptation that drew you in and you weren't like enticed by something let's just we can kind of lay all that aside and say okay let's just say that you just stumbled and you just fell into this pit and even in that moment it's like boy this sin sure does taste good even though it's vomit right you know you know what i'm talking about right it's 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 weird how that happens the backside of it you feel all that guilt and all that shame because it's like man i went back to that feeding trough again Costly. And the question is, are, are you willing and are you able to pay the price? That's the question. Are you willing and able to pay the price? Now, intrinsically, our answer is no, because we know that we can't pay the price for sin. But there are consequences for sin. And that's where sin costs you and I this side of heaven. Right? There's mess that happens on the other side. And there's skin in the game that you must give to overcome that sin you're not working to earn anything but it does cost you another way to ask the question is are you willing and able to pay the mortgage you look at this like a mortgage are you willing and able to pay the mortgage plus an extreme amount of interest for the space that sin wants to inhabit in your life are you willing and able to pay the mortgage plus an extreme amount of interest for the space that sin wants to inhabit in your life. The hard part about that is don't we all answer the question yes and no? In this moment, right now, we're all like in that space where like, no, no, I don't, I'm not willing, I don't want to. But don't we know that before we showed up here this morning, or sometime this last week, or sometime after we leave here today, we're gonna answer that question differently? Just by nature of our actions? And we're going to be like, oh, yes, I'm fine paying. Oh, no, I really don't want to pay that. Sin is costly. Third thing I notice in the text um, is the women and the children at the very end. The women and the children in verse uh, 44. Here's the thing about sin. a uh, Sin uh, always affects more than just you. So we get so wrapped up in our own little selfishness that we think we're the only ones that exist in this world, right? And, and somehow it's not really going to affect anybody else, especially if I keep it a secret or keep it private, so on and so forth. The reality is sin, no matter how secret or private you try to keep it, it, always affects someone else. And in this case, the sin of these men that affected the foreign women that they were living with or had married, as well as the children that were born as a result of those relationships. Now, I... We've all seen this, right? I experienced this growing up. Grew up in a home that was ripe with divorce and ripe with unhealthy relationships. And, and I've walked with other families and known others, too. I think we all get that, right? It's more than just you that gets affected by this kind of sin. The final verse of our text says, all these 111 men. It might have been 110, just so that I say that. But I think it was 111. All these 111 uh, men had married, living with these foreign women. Some of these women had born or given birth to children. What a way to end a book! I I didn't really notice that—that that that was like the last words of the book. Like, oh, holy smokes! (laughs) There's no—is there an upswing to this, like, at all? No. The last thing we see is that sin affected about 111 women plus their kiddos that were born into these relationships. Much could be said about what possibly happened from that point forward, but the scriptures are pretty silent. We really don't know. Most scholars assume that since these women and their children who had married men or were living with, they had other very wealthy families because that's the sense is that these men divorced their previous Jewish wives to be with these women so they had gained stock in the community. And standing, and if all that's true, big if, because argument from silence. You don't see it in Scripture. You really don't know. But if all that's true, hypothetically speaking, these women and these children probably went back to their families who were very wealthy and had a place to go. It wasn't like they were just kicked out on the street and went to the homeless shelter. But we really don't know. Um, either way, the principle is true. The sin of these men affected far more than just themselves. It affected these women and these children. Now, it's also definitely clear throughout Scripture when you think about the topic of divorce, right? God definitely hates divorce. It was never His plan. Because it absolutely devastates the lives of the people who are involved and it brings absolutely no honor to God whatsoever. Now, this is why, again, for me, it's really hard for me to believe that these relationships were actually bona fide marriages. And again, studying the Hebrew language... Makes it hard to believe too, but I think for ease of interpretation, some have put it this way. At the end of the day, though, God never seems to be in favor of divorce unless there's unfaithfulness, abandonment, or abuse. Malachi chapter 2, Mark chapter 10, Matthew chapter 5, chapter 19, those are places you can go to. You look at it, and it's very clear God is opposed to divorce. And again, you're looking at a guy... On stage, I come from a a home, my family, there was divorce. My mom had multiple dudes in and out of the house. Later teen, early early 20s, there's divorce in my own story and remarriage. I know that God hates divorce, and I watched personally. I I, I experienced the pain of that in my own family, but then I also watched the (coughs) pain and the devastation of that in my own children's faces as... We walked as I walked through that. So, divorce is destructive. That's my point, right? I think we all get that. just can't miss the fact that the sin of these men affected the women that they brought into their homes as well as the children that were born into those relationships. At the end of the day, sin, it has long-term effects. And it always affects more than just you and I. And again, if you come all the way back around to the beginning in Genesis, you go to Cain and Abel from Genesis chapter 4, and you look at the continued conflict in the Middle East today that began thousands of years ago back there with Cain and Abel. It started there, and it's continuing today. Thousands of years later, this kind of conflict is still in the world, right? That's another simple way of looking at it. Divorce is basically separation. The word separate is used here. Separate from those foreign women. It's it's another word that's in the same vocabulary as division, to divide. It's brokenness in relationship. That's what's taking place because of sin. At the end of the day, sin uh, results in ramifications or consequences for generations upon generations. The things that you and I do today do matter for all of eternity. The question is, when you think about this, the question I need to ask myself by way of application, and just by way of self-evaluation, is who else is going to have to pay the mortgage? Who else is going to have to pay the extreme interest rates for the sin that I allow to occupy rental space in my life? These are all ways of curbing and getting after this topic of killing sin. When we ask those questions, we come to terms with those things. I think it strengthens us in our fight against sin. And that's what we see taking place in this text. It's a list of the names of the guilty. It's the, it's the cost of the sin. It's also the ongoing influence of that sin. Consequences in other people's lives. That's what comes to the forefront of this text. You see, over the last three weeks of messages from the final verses of, of our book, Ezra, I think, really has been an intense study in the doctrine of sin, if you ask me. I, think, I don't think you could really approach it any other way, faithfully. Sin is ugly. It's ugly and it'll kill you. Unless you're willing to take some extreme measures and kill it by the grace of God. Now, I don't know what kind of sin you struggle with here today or what kind of sin you attempt to ignore or what kind of sins you attempt to justify or excuse or blame on others. Um, there is kind of a specific application here, I think, in the text that if you're in that place where you're pursuing a relationship and the other person's not a believer but you are, stop, halt, don't go forward, right? That's pretty easy to see here, I think. I'm not sure that we have much of that happening in our church family. There may be others outside of our walls who need to hear that. As a warning, be careful because you're, you're getting ready to jump off a cliff or getting ready to jump into a pit, and it's not going to be good. Um, for some general application for us, though, as you think about this, I, I think you've got to ask yourself, like, what kind of sin do I struggle with on a regular, you know? What kind of sin do I try to ignore, justify, excuse, blame? And I don't know that answer for you, but I, I do know this. There are two categories of sin that I like to try to break down. One, there's a socially acceptable. And then two, there's a socially unacceptable. Okay? There's a socially acceptable and a socially unacceptable. Now, in this day and age, it's pretty hard to find anything that's not socially acceptable. But I think you might agree with me on the way that I categorize it. Um, There's some socially acceptable sins, things that you can kind of get away with, like gossip uh, or laziness, right? Like Hardly anybody's probably going to come Hey, dude, you need to repent for your laziness or gossip or, or maybe slander. Slander is pretty big on the socially acceptable scheme right now. A Facebook post is easy to slander somebody and, and get away with it, right, without getting called out for it. doesn't make it any less of a sin. Um, pride is another one. Lust, to some extent, I think, or covetousness, right? Like, oh, man, that dude's got a great truck. I really wish I had it. Covetousness having some, what somebody else has, wishing that it was yours, you know. Those are things, and some of those things are a little bit more private too. Um, so, I, that's, that's when I say more socially acceptable. Maybe you struggle with some of those. Uh, and then you get into this more socially unacceptable. And again, I, there's probably some argument here that most of what's here is probably more socially acceptable in our day and age. But I think you can kind of feel the weight of the difference in things like pornography use or adultery, right or drunkenness, or fits of rage, or greed, or, or fornication. Those kinds of sins have a, I guess, what feels maybe like a little bit more of a dirty or bad feeling to them, right? And again, I, I'm not sure that I agree, um, but from a social standpoint, you have these different kinds of sins. Um, and here's the deal. Um, every sin, from the socially acceptable ones to the more socially unacceptable ones they've been dealt with at the cross of christ every last one of them has been dealt with at the cross of christ i romans 5 tells us this galatians 5 tells us this ephesians 2 colossians 3 all over the place in the scriptures you find that no matter what category of sin it's in these things have been dealt with at the cross of Christ, You see, at the cross, Jesus dealt with the problem of sin once and for all. He was the perfect guilt offering, right? More perfect than the guilt offering that we saw in our text today. He was far more costly than a ram. My sin costed far more than a ram from the flock. It costed Jesus His life. He's perfect. He went to the cross and He bled. And His body was broken and beaten and whipped. And He died in our place. Why? So that the presence and the the power and the, the, the penalty of sin could be washed away. See, this Jesus that I'm talking about, the Jesus that I hope that you know today, this Jesus is the same God who ransomed and He redeemed Israel out of slavery to Egypt. That's a picture of what Jesus was going to do later on the cross. He's the same God who ransomed and redeemed Israel out of Egypt. He rescued them. And then He said, now follow me this way because I'm your Redeemer. Our obedience is not based upon trying to earn something. Our obedience is always to be based on the saving grace that God has extended to us. The only thing that would motivate true transformation and repentance of sin is the understanding that God is our Redeemer. Same God. The same God gave His own Son for us so that we could then... We could then, at that moment, after coming to faith in Jesus, as we repent and turn away from sin, we would receive the power of His Spirit. Actually, the indwelling of His Spirit would come and live inside of us and give us the strength to lay hold of the victory that we have in the empty tomb. And then from that standing, from that seat, in that place, we would then wage war against the sin that our Savior died to annihilate. That's the encouragement and the assurance that we have in the message of the gospel. Our guilt and our shame. In conclusion, our guilt and our shame, they were nailed to a tree that day, right? Nailed to a tree that day when Jesus died for you and me. See, the moment that you and I repent from our sin and then turn in faith to Christ Jesus, that's the day that our name, listen to this, that our name is removed from the list of the guilty offenders, and it's added to a very much different list, and it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. If this last final text is all about a list of guilty offenders, I just want to leave you with this thought. Your name doesn't have to stay on that very public list. And if you trusted in Jesus, guess what? It's not on that very public list of offenders and sinners. It's on a different list. It's on a list that's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And this is where God the Father in all of his perfection looks at you and says, you're my son or you're my daughter and I love you and you're you're good and you're whole and you're clean. Man, it's beautiful, isn't it? See, on that new list, you and I are instantly transformed into sons and daughters of the living God. He's not a dead God. He's alive because he left the tomb empty. Our future, then, is absolutely secure. Because there is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sins have been washed away. Isaiah says this really well that though our hearts have played the harlot, though our hearts have played the harlot, like Hosea's wife, shacking up with ungodly, sinful desires, thoughts, behaviors, we've been washed white as snow. That's what Isaiah says. Been washed white as snow. We now stand before our Heavenly Father as pure and and as perfect as Jesus Himself. It is from that identity, sinners who have become saints, enemies who became family, it's from that identity that we're now able to do what Israel did in this passage. We're able to continue in repentance, able to continue in faith as you and I trust God to apply The shed blood, the broken body of Jesus over our lives once again. That's what we're always doing. It's a continual process. I said last week, repentance is not a destination. It's a process. It's a journey. And if you've trusted in Jesus today, I'll leave you with this last thought. Your name is no longer on the list of the guilty it has been moved onto the list of God's family. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this realization that if we've trusted in you, we are no longer listed among the guilty. We're listed among your family members. If there's anybody here today who has not taken a hold of that, anybody here who is not trusted in that message of the gospel I pray God that you would make that change today inside of them there are others here today who just need to be encouraged and reminded of the assurance that we have in the gospel we're part of your family even though we once were your enemies sinfully broken pray God that you would come to these closing moments and just do a, a work of healing encouragement and Strengthening among us. Trust you to do that. In Jesus' name, everybody say it. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.TheWellHastings.com